0: Welcome back to Fintech Business Podcast. I'm here today with Kurt Lin, co-founder and CEO of Pinwheel. Pinwheel is a fintech infrastructure company that enables startups and banks to make sense of real-time income and employment data such that they can become the primary bank, reduce risk, and activate their users. Kurt, thank you so much for taking the time to just jump right into it. A lot of people in the industry talk about solutions like Pinwheel as a kind of plaid for payroll data. Is that is that a fair analogy? Are there areas where it falls short? First of all, thank you so much for having me, Jason. This is
1: uh I, I'm excited for this. Um and to answer your question, I have I feel like a love-hate relationship with the analogy because I think it does help a lot of people as quickly as possible get a baseline understanding of kind of the business model and what we do. But there's a Bunch of big differences. And I think number one is obviously we don't connect to uh, bank accounts. We connect to not only payroll accounts, but more broadly income accounts as well. Um, And number two is we both read and write, which is really, really critical when we start to kind of Mm. dig into use cases, right? I think a lot of people see this world of data aggregation and say, oh, okay, well, it's just about, you know, passing data back and forth. We actually have the ability to update people's direct deposit settings or update other things in their payroll account related to, you know, health and benefits or what have you, or, you know, tax implication, tax implications. And uh, those are really, really important. You, you start to think about like what other products you can build off of that. And then I would say thirdly is... The relationship between a consumer and a bank is one-to-one, right? And so you can build a platform in a certain way that makes it kind of pretty seamless. What makes what we do much more complicated, uh, much to my chagrin, but I guess there is a moat in complexity, uh, is that there is at least three, if not arguably four stakeholders here. You have an employee, you also have an employer, You have a payroll system, and then you have, you know, uh, a bank or a fintech that needs access to that information, right? And so you get to these like really uh, tricky technical problems around how do we make sure that this data is easily accessible by the consumer? How do we make sure that it's uh, stored securely and then passed securely as well? And then there's also, even though we have a clear stance on it, there is a couple open questions, especially tied to the regulatory side of things around... Well, who owns the data as well, right? And so um, I think there's a lot to unpack there.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you're you're stealing my next question around sort of the differences in in and the complexity. I mean, part of the sort of story that has very, very slowly unfolded in in the open banking space is the data access right defined in Dodd Frank, which, like checking my calendar here, was uh, past thirteen years ago, and we're just sort of now going through the rulemaking around ten thirty-three. And um, you know, I think there's some excitement, at least among sort of like public policy slash open banking regulatory nerds, about like the details of that. But at this point, you know that process is started. It is something that is is you know required by law that is finally happening. I'm Not aware of any comparable sort of data access right in the space that you work in. Call it, it, you know, employer slash payroll data space. And and to a point you just made there, you know, uh, I'm admittedly like not familiar with the idea of does this data belong to, you know, okay, if I work whatever for Goldman, does the data belong to Goldman? If Goldman uses a outsourced uh, BPO firm like Aon, does it belong to Aon? If there's some other party in the mix, as far as like dealing with payroll stuff, like does it belong to that party? Can you like unpack a little bit to the extent that there is any kind of like legal or regulatory clarity in that space, you know, sort of who owns the data?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I think one of the I want to start off by clarifying what I believe is like a very common misconception, which is that uh, it's a zero sum situation or mutually exclusive, meaning if it's the consumer's data, then it can not also be the employer's data or the payroll system's data. Right. I think with the precedent that open banking and now more broadly open finance has set, especially with, you know, 1033 and Dodd-Frank, et cetera. I don't think anyone is arguing that who you are, how much you make, where you work, isn't the consumer's data, right? Like, how could it not be? And I think we are going to be on the right side of history here by saying that at the bare minimum, that data has to be owned by the consumer. Now, if other folks want to argue that they also own it as well, that's okay. I think that's fine. Because our philosophy is just as long as the consumer owns that data, they should have the ability to share that data with whoever they want, especially if it's to unlock cheaper, better financial products for themselves and ultimately leads to better financial outcomes. Right. And so a lot of the work that we've been doing um, on the policy side is we've been working uh, with the CAPB and with Senate committee members on uh, expanding the definition of 1033s uh, and more specifically the clause around consumer financial data. To explicitly call out that payroll data belongs in that larger bucket of consumer financial data, right? When you think about the implications of that information, it literally is the prerequisite before you can get a mortgage, get a credit card, get an auto loan, basically do anything in your financial life. So, you know, I think it's only a matter of time. It's not really a a question of if, it's a question of when. And it's one of those rare things that, especially as we've been working with folks on the Hill has gone bipartisan support, right? Everyone's like, "Yeah, this kind of this makes a ton of sense." Like, I, I, it not only makes sense, it also we've been able to prove that it leads to tangibly better financial outcomes for consumers, right? Like, by having this data uh, shown, it can help folks who have low FICO scores still be able to access, you know, a more affordable loan. And we also recently commissioned a study of over two thousand folks where. Uh, over eighty percent of people,
0: sorry,
1: over eighty percent of people, uh, said that they would be willing to share their income and employment data if it meant that they could, you know, access a better financial product, right? And so there is also consumer demand for this to happen as well.
0: I mean, this is, you know, interesting in aligns with a couple of other conversations I've been having recently, um, actually around the identity space. And granted, what we're talking about right now is not verifying somebody's identity in the the most narrow sense of like, you know, I am Jason Mikula, my date of birth is X, my social security number is Y, but call it, you know, credentials and information associated with my identity that would be really important for the kinds of use use cases you just described, right? Applying for a loan. Um, You know, my background is consumer lending, certainly understand the uh, importance of verifying information like employment and income as part of underwriting to reduce risk. Uh, but even in, in you know, totally different applications, um, like, for instance, a background check or applying for, you know, applying for a job. A- and I apologize, I've been reading, like, so many articles about George Santos's bogus resume that that is just, like, top of mind right now. But it's like, if you think of, like, okay, what does it mean to look at somebody's resume and, you know, they've listed i worked here i worked there i worked the other place you know how are people verifying that right now they're probably picking up the phone and calling so even as the employee who's like okay i started at this employer on date x i worked there through date y my like official title was whatever you know i can only provide essentially a declaration that that's true but there's no way for me to basically provide a, whatever, a certified credential, like I really did work at this place. And you can know that without having to call, you know, call the HR department, or I suppose in the old days, like ping TWN in the case of underwriting.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. And you you mentioned, you know, what do you do now, right? Like some people are picking up the phone and actually calling your employer. Uh, There's also I would argue worse yet, a lot of it is just like user reported or user generated, meaning you're just submitting a pay stub or a paper form. That's how most of it works now, right? So that leads to a huge friction point where you as the customer have to get all your paper forms, your W2s, your pay stubs and upload them, uh, which is obviously a, a friction point for you. It creates an even bigger problem on the other side where for the lender or the bank, they deal with massive amounts of fraud. Right. Like if you, and this is still true, but as of a year ago, if you Google pay stub, the, I think three out of the top six links are pay generators. Right. And so it's like the, one of the most common questions that we get is like, well, where's this data source? And we're like, these are direct connections to these payroll systems. So not only is it source data, it's also, by the way, been verified via an I-9 by the employer as well. So you know all of this is the most accurate up-to-date data that you could possibly get.
0: No, I, I um, listeners will probably recall, you know, I worked for multiple years in the payday lending space and um, several states, at least at the time, had legal requirements that you specifically ask for a pay stub, right? And if you think about, like, why might that be the legal requirement, you know, okay, W-2 demonstrates that you had a certain amount of income in the prior tax year. So, you know, for a typical consumer applying for, like, a mortgage or maybe even a personal loan, you know, that might that might be sufficient, presuming the economic climate hasn't changed like drastically. Uh, but really all you're verifying is they made a certain amount of taxable income in like the prior tax year, which could be quite dated by the time you're you're getting that document. You know, in, in payday, there's obviously a you know, higher risk sensitivity to verifying somebody really is employed. They really have this income. Uh, I forget like Nevada, maybe Illinois at the time required, like you have to have a pay stub. Um, and they're really like there really was no sort of programmatic uh, alternative either that was like technically feasible or that was acceptable under the law. And to your point, you know, it's pretty easy to Google fake pay stub generator. And again, if you're uploading a PDF, you know, this is probably, maybe there's some amount of automation. There's a lot of tools that can, you know, sort of parse data from from PDFs, OCR or whatever. Um, but at the end of the day, it could just be a person or that automation looking at it and sort of checking like, do these amounts kind of make sense? You know, uh, and that is one, like quite inefficient uh, just from a resources perspective. And, and two, you know, certainly is a difficult way to, to screen for, for fraud. Um, I want to actually go back to a point you made about the difference of being able to read and write data and the use cases that that enables, Um, you know, particularly around uh, like account switching or direct deposit switching. I mean, thinking about some of the, you know, the current administration posture, current regulatory posture around fostering competition. um, And that was certainly part of some of the statements that Director Chopra made at Money 2020 when he was speaking. I was there Somewhat close to the front row, um, in some of the follow-up statements since then. In a sense, it almost seems like the capabilities that um, Pinwheel and similar services provide arguably like better execute potentially like help to better execute that mission. Right? If I'm thinking of like okay, you know, a lot of things you can do around underwriting with cash flow data. Um, But to actually execute that change of like, oh, man, like, Chase is the worst, like, I want to move over here. It sounds like one of the things that you enable is making that far more automated than like filling out a form and giving it to my HR, giving it to my payroll team, or logging into my, you know, HR benefits portal and having to manually do it myself.
1: Totally. So uh, before I get too excited and jump into all you're talking about, I think I should just clarify for the audience, for those who aren't aware of uh, what we do. So as we mentioned, uh, we both read and write. And on the right side, where we've seen the most demand and certainly in the past uh, few years is around our automated direct deposit switching service. So the problem is pretty straightforward, which is obviously those who are building consumer financial services, especially if you're a retail bank or a neobank, You know, that direct deposit is so important for your, you know, LTV profitability, what have you. But the process of switching is really high friction, right? Like you said, Jason, it's either you're submitting a paper form to the HR team, which largely gets lost in the ether half the time, or you're navigating some really clunky like portal uh, yourself, right? Either way, it's not great. And so what we do is because we can connect directly on the back end to ADP or whatever payroll system you use. Um, we can create a really seamless uh, process where let's say, you know, we work with basically at this point, all the major fintechs. So let's say you, um, and uh, I should also add, we're making great progress with the traditional FIs as well. So let's say you sign up with a, uh, for a new bank account. Um, you, you, They say, great, your account is open now. Uh, if you go ahead and fund it with direct deposits, you can unlock all these other great, you know, cool features. At that point, the Pinwheel experience would pop up. The user would say, Yes, I want to, you know, switch all or some of my paycheck. And then the back end, we take care of all of that for them. And what that does is per your point, it makes the process of actually switching to a new bank account seamless. And I feel like that's been the promise. Like not only Chopra, but uh Biden actually in his executive order when he first came into office was like, Hey. account portability is something that we really need to push because that will drive competition, right? And I think people have been so focused on the data portability that they've kind of haven't really given, I think, enough attention to the other part, which is like, hey, that's great that my data can get passed from one bank to another, but my paychecks are still getting passed at the old bank. Like, I'm still stuck, right? And the same thing goes for the the bill pay side of it as well, right? Mm -hmm. And so can you take like direct deposit is, I think, the most important piece because that's where you're going to be spending all your money from that point forward. But how do we really truly achieve this uh, idea of portability? And it includes the data side, but it also includes moving the paycheck and also moving all of your like bills as well in kind of one fell swoop. And that's, I think, the the engine that's going to really drive innovation in this space. And for what it is worth, I am really excited because the adoption of the direct deposit switching on the traditional... Um, FIs, we thought was going to take much longer. And it's already happening as we speak. Uh, Like we've signed with a couple of the top 10 banks already, and we're making great progress there. So I'm excited
0: that this is hopefully going to happen sooner rather than later. Well, and it's certainly not, you know, an impossible technical challenge as you're demonstrating in the US. And, you know, as anyone who might be listening in London or, or has lived there, like I have, you know, the current account switch service, which is, I believe, like government-operated or government-mandated, does exactly this both on the credit and on the debit side. So if you're like, oh, man, like Barclays is the worst. No offense to anyone in Barclays. Or you want to move to Monzo, like you can do this. I think it's like a 7-10-day to guarantee to port both your credits and your direct debits to to the new account. So that, I mean, granted, lots of caveats. UK banking system is considerably more concentrated, not as fragmented as the US. You know, you don't have like state and federal banking regulators, et cetera. But it's definitely technically an achievable uh, outcome, which which you know multiple other countries um, you know, have been able to do. Um switching gears a little bit, you know, we've talked about some of the regulatory, I call it upside as far as promoting competition and and how that's sort of like an expressed goal of current, you know, CPB, current administration. But there are also potential downside risks that you need to navigate working in this space. And I'm thinking particularly elements like, you know, Fair Credit Reporting Act, um, ECOA, Equal Credit Opportunity Act. I mean, as far as how specifically in, in the lending use case, you know, if, um, if Pinwheel is enabling lenders to use this data to underwrite sort of, you know, do these, you know, how do these regulations apply? And to the extent that they do, you know, who sort of bears the responsibility of ensuring the accuracy of the data, right? And I think of like, I looked at some old TWN polls of mine, and I'm like, oh, man, the data in here is crazy and not right, or like not up to date. Granted, that's a very long time ago. Um But, you know, as far as I'm aware, both on the banking data aggregation side and in in the sort of emerging uh, payroll employment data side, I don't believe that this is a settled question at this point. So our
1: perspective on this is that it is more or less a settled question because the folks that we are serving, our customers are governed and regulated by the same rules, right? So we're partnering with the banks and lenders who are subject to all the regulations that everyone else is. And so if they're using our data to make decisions about credit and underwriting and risk, then we are subject to FICRA, right? And because of that, we made the choice very early on. Honestly, Much to my chagrin, because it's operationally way more complicated and a huge pain in the ass. But we made the choice to be a CRA, a consumer reporting agency, because we saw this coming and said, you know, I cannot in good faith sit there and try to claim that you are not uh, like this data can't be used for underwriting. And then you're not responsible for the, the outcomes of that data right? You can't just furnish it and say, well, it's not my problem. It's inaccurate, right? This doesn't make any sense. And frankly, I think doesn't align with philosophical we believe, which is it's our job to access the data and make sure that it is as accurate as it can possibly be and live with integrity to that mission and that belief. And if we are ever having a situation where the data that we have leads to adverse action or is in some way inaccurate, that's our responsibility. We're at fault, right? And uh, we are legally because of our our, um, our CRA designation, whereas basically nobody else in the space besides Finicity um, has made that choice. And I think on a long enough timeline, you will start to see that that becomes a real issue because it's just frankly illegal to use that data for anything other than basic verification, right? And so we feel strongly that this really isn't like an, an up in the air question. If that mm-hmm. data is being used, For any sort of decisioning, it must be coming from a CRA. Um, And for what it's worth, we've also seen that this kind of like leaning into regulation has really helped us um, partner with the right folks. And, you know, when it comes to the sales process has been a a really key reason why uh, our customers are, are
0: picking us. Well, I would think, you know, particularly if the roadmap is to sell to more major FIs, that question needs to get resolved, right? I mean, it's potentially one thing to sell to, you know, an upstart. I don't literally mean upstart, but baby uh, fintech lender that is maybe higher, you know, higher risk tolerance as far as how they ingest and how they use, you know, somewhat novel forms of data for screening and underwriting. It's a different thing if you want to go sell to Chase and Bank of America and Wells Fargo, who, you know, for <laughs> despite The large fines that these institutions tend to incur are actually, you know, rather risk averse when it comes to things like experimenting with AI and using, you know, quote unquote, alternative data, um, you know, let alone using relatively, you know, small or newer vendors. Totally.
1: I think, uh, and I'm sure we'll get to this at at a later point in the conversation, What we see is that, like like the the hope has always been, I should say, that you serve the early adopter population, which are the FinTechs, but the way that you really know that you have changed the game for lack of a better term is when all the big banks that you just mentioned adopt the same technology. And so, you know, I think the adoption curve for us has been faster than expected because we've leaned so much into the regulation and said, look, like if we were operating in consumer tech and the way there's it's the wild, wild west and there's no rules, like, sure. Like, I think this would be a very different story. But if you're operating in financial services, like the regulations for all the pain that they cause exist for a reason, right? Like something happened sometime back before probably you and I were born or so, <laughs> oftentimes while, we, <laughs> like not that long ago, right? Some people did bad things. Those bad things hurt consumers. Then lawmakers said, we have to create laws to protect these consumers. And that's why all these regulations exist. And so if you just at face value, at least appreciate that these things exist because they're there to protect the the folks who are largely the ones most at risk, then leaning into it is not only the right thing for the business, but just like the ethical thing, frankly. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, I mean the and you know not to lean into the very uh at this point overused like fintech cliche of like expanding access and inclusion but I mean that does sound like one sort of core use case of your product around you know unlocking either unlocking access to credit period or being able to bring um interest rate, you know, particularly below the sort of arbitrary, but very real 36% cap that sort of most of the US lending system operates in, you know, on the other hand, I'm sure that there's like an entire sort of second bucket, which is just uh, increasing efficiency, right? I mean, it's it's been a while since I did my mortgage uh, application, and it was also here with a Dutch bank. Um, but I can tell you it involved a lot of PDFs and emails, um, which was not fun. And if you start to think about like, okay, what are the inputs? What are the fields that go into these things and start to think about the combination, you know, yeah, open banking on sort of the assets and um, you know, bank account data side, but also the other components that you're going to be looking at as a mortgage underwriter, like employment, um, you know, and the, the other pieces of information that live in that sort of payroll HR system, you know, I'm imagining there's sort of multiple ways you can serve different segments in the financial services system.
1: Yeah, totally. So let me give a couple other use cases here that I think will tie this all together. Um, One of the, so we obviously have the direct deposit switching product, as we mentioned, and that serves everyone from, you know, uh, a small starter neobank all the way up to the biggest banks in in the world. Uh, Number two is we also have a verification product. So obviously, like you mentioned, whether it's a mortgage or an auto loan or what have you, you do need to verify that you are who you say you are, you make what you say you make. And uh, we provide that service as well. And then the third product that we released last year, which we've seen a ton of uh, growth and traction on as well, is around this idea of earned wage access, right? And it's really although it can be used by anybody, it's oftentimes used by folks who are hourly workers, right? Who on balance tend to be lower income. And that's why they kind of need that. Uh, like they run out of money in between paychecks. And right now their only you know option is really to go to a payday lender or to use some other you know predatory service just to make ends meet. And so one of the things that we realized is the history of earned wage access is long and storied. So I'll try to keep it fairly brief here most everyone who's done it before has done it or not most everyone who's done it before has done it in basically one of two ways they've either gone to the employer and said like hey walmart give me your data and then i will you know offer this service to your people and i'll pay i'll charge you walmart for the uh the service of doing so because i'll be able to uh guarantee you or promise you rather an increase in engagement or retention in your people Right, the problem with that is it takes forever to scale. You're never going to really get to mass adoption. The other side of it is some folks have tried to go D to C, but because they don't have really good data, right, they're kind of like guessing at using geolocation or what have you to kind of like bridge the gap, and it kind of works. But there's always like kind of big risk factors there. What we saw was, wait a second, we can connect into all the time and attendance systems and all the payroll systems, so we have source data in real time to know that Jason is clocked in and clocked out today of a shift at Chipotle. We also know that he is still actively employed, so there's minimal risk for fraud. And we can help claw back the funds that we forwarded in two weeks or a month or whenever that paycheck actually lands. And if you put those three things together, now you have earned wage access as a feature as a service. And so we've launched that with some of the biggest fintechs in the space, and hopefully soon with uh, some of the largest traditional FIs as well. And that is a use case that Really helps, I think, that underserved segment be able to access liquidity at any time without having to pay any sort of exorbitant fees or pay like a, a usurious rate to access that
0: credit. So, you know, EWA is probably one of the examples I point to most frequently about like a real uh, innovation that has been very positive for consumers. I mean, to your point, and again, like I worked in that segment segment the payday segment for like four or five years i'm very familiar it's like you know you could be paying 10 15 20 to borrow 100 for a period as short as like five six seven days and you know ewa it doesn't it's not going to solve that for every consumer particularly given that a lot of low-income borrowers um are on social security benefits or some kind of other government benefit that this wouldn't apply for. But for those consumers who are employed, it takes something that used to be 15 per 100 and takes it hopefully very close, if not to zero, um, which I think is a far better model than the sort of tipping expedited funding fees etc that that you see with a lot of the sort of direct to consumer quote-unquote earned wage access or, or cash advance type products um i'm hoping we have time to squeeze in a couple of like macro themed questions um you know since i apparently fancy myself a, a macro economist now um lots of hand-wringing right now you know both sort of like Wall Street Journal, Business Page, but also within like fintech and banking. Given this is an environment that like we've never we've never seen <laughs> at least at least not in my uh, career as far as like inflation, interest, growing layoffs, although concentrated in the tech sector, uh, tech sector, banking, fintech, uh, somewhat weirdly not in sort of blue collar hourly worker sector, which is still showing a lot of resilience. I mean, from your vantage point, working with fintechs banks, particularly when it comes to sort of credit quality, appetite for risk, how they're underwriting that risk, you know, what have you been seeing? What have you been hearing? Um, you know, from where you sit?
1: First of all, I just want to say that uh you're not alone. I feel like everyone now is a junior macroeconomist. <laughs> on on Twitter at least. Yeah, exactly. Um what we are seeing is Definitely a, a sea change here. I would say the tenor of the conversation, if we rewind the clock six to nine months, everyone was just so focused on like, well, how do we grow our top line? And how do we grow our like book of business? And like, let's just get loan volume as high as humanly possible. And let's just get like, like, we, like we'll, let's do whatever it takes to pay super high customer uh, acquisition costs because we know that we're gonna be able to like monetize them down the line, blah, 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 right? And that has really changed uh, to now on the lending side, it's every other word is like risk management and like collections and like, you know, how do we, basically, how do we look at our book and like make sure that everything that needs to get paid gets paid and we minimize our loss rates, right? Like that's the entire conversation every time. And then on the banking side, Especially in an environment with rising interest rates, uh, you know, deposits are getting repriced or mm-hmm. deposit accounts are getting repriced. And uh, that means that the there's kind of been a shift in like, hey, we really want to make sure that we can shore up our balance sheets and get our deposit growth really healthy. And so it becomes a hyper focus on like, let's really make sure that we're driving direct deposits and just like continuing to make sure that we're, you know, Getting the assets in as much as possible, which is not actually a change in terms of the outcomes, but the tenor of 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 how you get there and why you get there, I think is is a bit different. But I think the most jarring difference has definitely been on the lending side, where um you know we we had our whole sales team like we had a powwow. Where we're like, hey, what are we hearing from the market? And it was like the 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 notes that we had from our like Q2 like uh, powwow was like you know, how do we like really show that this, you know, helps them open the top of funnel and increase conversions Mm -hmm. and like maximize their book of business, loan volumes. And then every single conversation that folks are having now is like, how do we use pinwheel data to minimize risk? Right? Like, can we get the real time information? Like, how do I know that you are, or I, I want to know that you are still employed right now. I want to be able to monitor your employment. I want to monitor your income. If things change, like here's a loan mod, here's an adjustment, here's a way to make sure that I don't lose this thing completely and figure out how to make sure that I'm minimizing risk as much as possible.
0: That is exactly the the sort of direction I was going to go uh, as far as like, are there, are there currently ways or are you working towards ways to do those kinds of things? So, I mean, on the one hand, you could make an argument that this is kind of like consumer unfriendly, but if I you know, upfront, have your permission to monitor your employment and income on an ongoing basis, and maybe you know that's getting you some sort of preferential rate by letting me sort of keep tabs on that. And then I see like, oh man, you know your your hours were cut, and you used to be bringing home you know seven thousand dollars a month, but now it's like five thousand. And you know I you have a credit card with me. I'm you know I'm going to cut your line. You know the consumer's not going to like that when you take that action but as far as thinking about it from the you know lender perspective that becomes a very sophisticated and narrowly tailored way to adjust risk appetite through the cycle i mean if i think back to um either i'm either housing crisis or maybe even covid i think this happened during covid where lenders started like cutting credit card lines and then there's this big uproar of like oh right when i need this you know, the bank is taking it away. And, and, you know, that was responding to macro indicators. You know, you, if with something like this you know, deployed, uh, again, like safely and transparently with the proper user permissions, you know, you can imagine a way where you can do it in a much more tailored fashion, which, yes, is still not a great outcome necessarily for that individual consumer, but conversely might protect them becoming from becoming over-indebted. Exactly right. And that's kind of been our thesis, which is, look, we want
1: to do whatever we can to make sure that consumer is in the best financial you know, shape they can be. The benefit of the data is that whenever possible, we can give advanced signal, right? Because the payroll system, you see stuff in real time that you'll, you won't even see the make account sometimes for months, right? Mm-hmm. So like the example I always give is you've been, if you've been fired or furloughed that sometimes won't show up because you'll have continued payments and severance or what have you going into the account, or you may not know that person actually doesn't have a job anymore, for three or four months down the line, right? And if the consumer obviously grants permission, is willing to share that information, and the lender can see that, it's like, hey, okay, it actually behooves us to pit pause, let you figure out, you know, how to get to that next step, and then restart this thing. Because otherwise, the other option is to just wake up one day, realize it's been defaulted on, and now you're selling that debt to a collector for pennies on the dollar, right? So it actually behooves both sides of the table to have more information earlier on to help both parties make the best choices.
0: Amazing. Well, we will have to uh, check back in, in a year and see how uh, our m- macro predictions have have panned out. Um I'm afraid that's all the time we have for today. Kurt, thank you so much for taking the time. Where can listeners keep up with the latest news from Pinwheel? Uh,
1: we have social accounts on LinkedIn and on Twitter at Pinwheel API. Uh, you can also follow me at Curtis J. Lin on Twitter as well. And then um, for anyone who is interested in learning more and or interested in joining us on our mission, um, we also have a careers page. We are still hiring. Um, so it's pinwheelapi.com slash careers. And I still, I also want to say on a final note, Jason, you have an incredibly soothing radio DJ voice. And I uh, I feel much more at peace and calm than I was before this call started.
0: I, I'm I'm leaning into my, my second act in my career of uh, podcast slash radio host. Um, all right. Until next time, Kurt. Thanks, Jason.